Futurized goes beneath the trends to track the underlying forces of disruption in tech, policy, business models, social dynamics, and the environment. I'm your host, Trunarne Unheim, futurist and author. In episode four of the podcast, the topic is the future of remote activism. Our guest is Laurent Lisha, entrepreneur, ex-diplomat, and standards activist. Laurent, let me just ask you this first before we get going. How, how are you doing? What's what's going on with you? Well, uh, Tron, you and I have been communicating via camera, and I think you and I are both in the same sort of state of mail disrepair. Um, I try to stay on a regimen of shaving and being presentable. Even though this is a podcast, I still made an effort. Um, and I think you're trying that too. I know you have your guitars in your den there. I have mine. There's all these, all these routines and accoutrements that are keeping us on track um, as husbands. I know you're a good husband. I'm trying to be a good husband. But I got to tell you, it's been hard um, having a routine as a remote worker, which is what I am right now. And I have been for years, but this is harder because the, all the days blur together. I don't know what day of the week it is. I'm, I'm glad I know today. That's because we have the podcast. I know it's a Monday. Hallelujah. I don't know I, this I agree with you, Laurel. It's so interesting how, even though I think you and I are similar, at least in that respect, that we have comfortably been working remotely for years. I mean, and I'm not even talking decades. I think, I mean, it's what could be like 15, 20 years I've been working remotely at times, but it's always been at will or, you know, within limits or, you know, and it's not been every day of the week in day in and day out. So this kind of mandated remotehood is very different. I agree. And it's also, it's easy to get into your own mental cave, so to speak. And you have to make an effort, get out of your comfort zone, I think. That's been what I've been using. First of all, I go out for walks, really long walks. And I talk to friends every day. Second, with I think my, that's so important. Yeah, it is. I don't know if you get to do that in Boston. Do you? Well, we have the outside. I, I'm struggling more with, uh, you know, having my kids understand the importance of starting the morning with, with a walk. But, you know, I, I am a big believer in, in routines and I'm a big believer in the outside as a refresher for your mind and for your body. But oh, Laurent, yes. I, I wanted yeah. to take this um, into our topic soon, but I, I, let me just bring this up because Laurent, mm -hmm. you have a PhD, you're a former executive director at Oasis, uh, which we'll talk about in a minute. Um, so you've been doing a lot of leadership around standardization. It's a st standards body consortium. And prior to that, you have founded several web-related companies. One was called Tracker and Webmotion. And you've also been a diplomat in the French foreign affairs. You worked around the world. Um, you went to Sorbonne. I, I love the Sorbonne. You speak in lots of languages. And you're currently in San Francisco. Now, I don't know if I summarized that correctly, but it's a pretty interesting set of experiences for then suddenly to find yourself locked in a house. Would you say, Laurent? Yeah, and in a suburb in California, which I, I never thought as a younger guy this would ever happen, right? Um, but, you know, uh, fate is fate. You, you gotta, gotta take it as it comes. I think it's an interesting fate in the sense of 
what do we do with this lockdown as people? Everybody's dealing with very similar things, except for places where uh, it's reopened. But the reopening is not going well. It's not going well here in California. It's not going well elsewhere in the United States. Um, the Europeans seem to have it a little more under control than we do, but I'm still waiting to see what that's going to do to COVID numbers. Um, I'm concerned. I agree with you. Right? Yeah. Yeah, I'm, no, I'm I agree with that, you, and, and I'm concerned. Yeah, right. so we're both concerned that this is not going to pan out. Um, and at the same time, we can't afford, I think, uh, to, to lock things down again uh, and deprive people of their livelihood. That's, that's just not possible. Well, Laurent, this is interesting, this whole lockdown, because initially I thought, well, lockdowns, you know, uh, that's kind of an ancient tactic. But the more and more I realized the kind of lockdown we have done here is completely unprecedented. I mean, you know, even in horror movies in Hollywood, you lock down a little village or, you know, worst case, a big village. That's not what we've been doing here. The, the whole world in staggered lockdown with various degrees of Freedom, which has led to some countries sort of having it under control, only to realize that if they want to open up to their borders to their neighboring country, they don't have it under control. Look, this is so much of a mouthful. And this whole idea of remote activism, which we'll get into in a second, is going to bring up all of these issues. But I just wanted to take it down a notch because you have one more interesting thing in your background that I really wanted to get to. And I think it's so important in this day and age to have many things going on in your head and in your, um, basically, uh, you know, in your mindset. You're an author of a sci-fi trilogy. That's mm -hmm. intriguing. And I, I just want to quote from, I think it's something you wrote on your website about this Three Houses trilogy. You said, I choose to write about wonder stillness and the senses tell me tell me more about this so that's really how i've been coping with the lockdown but that's that's where maybe the conversation veers into the spiritual i don't know if um the the people listening to this podcast are going to be interested, but um for for about 10 maybe 15 years uh now i've been practicing meditation in the buddhist of meditation uh, and this has brought me a lot of joy and, and peace uh, and I do it every day without fail even when I feel like it's not going too well um, I write I'm, I think I'm able to write or better able to write now about the experience of stillness uh, and what we actually perceive of the world, what's happening inside of us, our inner life in connection to the outer life, because of this meditation practice. Um, like most spiritual practices, this one arose from a not-so-great uh, situation. My wife got really sick. She had uh, multiple sclerosis. Still does, but the, the treatment worked, and she's now almost back to normal, which is a minor miracle. Uh, but it's, it was very rocky for a long time. Uh, and, and really, I'm finding that the peace and quiet that I'm able to achieve through meditation helped me through that time, but it's also helping me through this COVID. Um, how this connects to the writing, um, 
I think writing is stillness. Uh, it's basically taking a step back from what we experience and trying to figure out what the truth of the experience is. Um, I'll say maybe just 30 seconds about the trilogy. Uh, the idea came to me in Paris, actually. I was at the Museum of the Quai which is sort of the Museum of Anthropology there. Um, and I was in an immersive installation that was called the House of Women. And it was, uh, I think it might have been in Papua New Guinea or maybe in Africa. And basically you took on the persona of a little girl who was initiated into the, the secrets of the House of Women. Uh, you know, how to make babies, how to weave, how to, how to prepare food, that kind of thing. And then there was a house of men that was an immerse, another immersive installation. And there you got to be a little boy. And the, uh, there was a warrior dance, and it was much more aggressive and violent. And basically, you were preparing for, for the hunt and maybe for conflict. And, and I thought, wow. Don't we still live in these houses today, except we don't know it, right? Um, gender worlds are more fluid, but I think the houses are still there. Uh, and I think the house of God is definitely still there, even though in a lot of places we've stepped away from it. So what do they look like now? Uh, and what do they look like in our minds as we lock down? Or, or do we still live in these houses? Um, I should say, maybe to close on this question, I had a dream last night uh, that I was hanging out with my men's group. I used to be in a men's group. This is California, right? So there's men's groups. Um, and <laughs> so I was with my men's group, but nothing was going as planned. I was supposed to play the guitar and I couldn't play. This guy who was supposed to play the drums didn't know how to play anymore. We were supposed to celebrate the opening of sure. the town square. And guess what? It didn't open. <laughs> um, so I think even in my dreams, I certainly live in the house of men. And um, I thought it would be interesting to, to write about that. Laurent, this is fascinating. I, I want to bring us then from, from this intriguing value of stillness and reflection to the fact that you have shifted your career from pure entrepreneurship in sort of like various digital aspects and then via sort of standardization, which we'll I'll talk about hopefully a little bit as well. But now onto digital activism and political activism. What, first of all, what do you understand by that term? So like you probably, I'm sure you have, um, I've, I've participated in a ton of virtual town halls, even before the lockdown, by the way. Um, this was thought uh, by politicians to be a, a great way to reach out to a bunch of people and have these virtual town halls where you could ask a lot of questions, usually in webinar form. And I found these to be pretty powerful, but I also found them to be very controlled. Um, politicians like to control the narrative. Uh, and I thought, hey, that feels a little bit one way. What if we reverted that uh, or inverted that equation and the people uh, who make up the town hall get to control the narrative? They start the narrative. What would that look like? If it's not the politician 
dictates the dialogue, but it's us, you and me. We get to set the agenda for the call or the meeting. I don't like the way it was in Switzerland, uh, maybe still is, uh, when they first invented uh, the, uh, the, the uh, open-ended town hall debate, right? They're the ones who invented that. Well, that was the inspiration for um, my view of remote activism. We need to put the power of digital transformation, not just into the hands of the corporation, but into the hands of the citizenry. And I don't know about you, but I feel like we're way behind on that. When you say we, Laurent, who are you referring to? Is specific society or specific types of citizens or just generally in our global society? You know, I'm going to ask a great question. I'm going to say mostly Western democracies, even though we are, are trying uh, to implement that, it, it hasn't gone all that well. I can't speak to China, Russia, uh, or places like that because I don't think they're democracies. In fact, they're not. Uh, and they have no intention of putting power in the hands of citizenry. Um, and I always get mad at my liberal friends, especially the ones on the extreme left, who tell me, eh, it's all the same everywhere. There's giant corporations controlling us. Well, you know, there's giant corporations here in the West, but uh, we have a say in things. The fact that you and I are able to have this conversation, and there's not some crazy dude in boots followed by guys with guns coming into the, both our rooms and telling us, you can't go on like this, which might happen in China or Russia. I think that's a pretty huge difference between two systems, don't you think? I agree. I agree. I think that that's different. But I do wonder if we are all able to take the advantage take advantage of of the tools that we are given and the opportunities right i think you know you experience it more in the absence and that's when you start perhaps exercising these rights because rights and responsibilities is one thing but what you do about it is a is a whole other thing so that brings me to sort of leading into where we're going with what you're currently doing about it is it a rare thing or is it a prevalent thing to be politically active in the sense that you have been talking about right now, where you actually are trying to set the agendas or, or actually truly influence, because you're not just talking about being kind of an, a, a passive sort of like member of some sort of social movement. You're talking about a much more active role. We'll, we'll get to these social movements in a second, because I know you have some very interesting observations on what's happening to our possible remote participation in these processes, but is it rare or prevalent, would you say, in our Western democracy to actually be an active citizen, to get engaged whenever okay, so there is something to get engaged? About? That's, I think, um, that's a wonderful question, and it's, um, it, it's a testimony to the work you do in, in terms of helping us figure out the future. Um, it's a complicated question, too. If you look at just the data, right? What's the data out there? What are the rates of participation? Um, certainly in the United States, uh, the abstention rate has been staggering. Like half the, half the eligible voting population doesn't vote. Um, it's hard to understand why. Uh, a lot of the discourse is, okay, these people are disenfranchised. Uh, because 
uh, the education system is not working because they don't feel represented uh, by the parties, uh, because they can't afford to go vote when they're working, whatever the narrative is. But 50%, does that really count? Uh, is that an access issue or is that a deeper problem? Um, we've seen that recently in, in France, just now. Was it yesterday, right? Sunday? Uh, the French voted in the municipals. Nobody showed up. 40%. 40% of people showed up to vote. What's so, going on? I here? mean, one of those, yeah, what is that all about? I think one of the things that we have to separate out and, and talk about, you know, in different ways is that party politics and party engagement in elections is very different from political engagement in social movements or, or even individually as like a, you know, this whole theory about the political consumer, which may or may not be overblown, but in any case, it's an individualized reaction, I guess, you know, without necessarily being tied into a social movement or structure uh, of which the uh, election participation is kind of the extreme example in my mind, right? Because you have to uh, adhere to a whole bunch of things, notably deadlines and uh, and other stuff, and uh, you know register, and you have to show up at a given moment. Uh, but activism is about so much more. So tell me, and and I guess this is a segue into you know you're the CEO and co-founder of Blue Nami. It's a social activism dashboard. That's I know it's still in stealth mode. So you tell me what you can tell us about it. But you don't have a small aim. You you actually aim to transform American politics and perhaps world politics. Please explain what that means. And we're in an election year, so this is not an uninteresting theoretical debate. I mean, it could have real consequences. Tell, tell us about it. Yeah, so to us, to, to the BlueNami.org team, it, it, it's not theoretical. It's about why aren't people more engaged? Uh, why don't they take action? And better yet, why don't they become activists? An activist is someone who takes action on a regular basis. Someone who understands that their engagement makes a difference. Ah, makes a difference. Well, maybe, and that's our theory, maybe we feel, certainly I feel, uh, I felt before I started this project, uh, like I don't make a difference. I'll give you a very simple example. If I vote in California, uh, and, and for some listeners in Europe, this may be difficult to grasp, but if I vote in California in the presidential election, really my impact is nil because the way the electoral college works here in the United States, um, you know California is going to be democratic. So one voice makes absolutely no difference. It would be so much better if I were able to vote in a red state because now suddenly. I would be uh, a democratic vote in a state that's opposed to my views. And that starts making a difference. I think people were shocked in Europe when they saw in the previous election, 2016 presidential, uh, that Hillary Clinton had two or maybe even three million more votes than Trump got, and she still lost. And that's because of the Electoral College, which is sort of the middleman between the voter and the actual presidential tally, right? So I, I understand that. So so given given though in the US the electoral college for now is a is a you know is a persistent reality, 
how does a dashboard like yours, or independently of that, even just the political activist who who actually wants to engage, and like you pointed out, let's say that it makes more sense for you to engage in what you call a red state, which I, you, you know maybe you should explain that to to the listener what you're actually talking about, but it, it, but a state that votes traditionally uh, Republican in your in your sense, uh, you know, in, in from where you were coming from uh, in this question. But how do you engage and does that happen? And to what extent can digital tools enable this engagement? And, and is it enabling this kind of engagement? So here I have to explain how I got involved in the project because I think that that's how people will get it. That's how I got it. Um, okay, so just really quickly, uh, the U.S. is a bipartisan system like England. Uh, here we have Republicans and Democrats. Uh, the color for Republicans is red. The color for Democrats is blue. You'll notice that the name of our project is Blue Nami, Blue Tsunami. And I'll, I'll get to that in a second. That's actually a problematic name uh, for us at the moment. And, and I want to say why. So red state, blue state, right? Um, when I got, here's how I got involved. My, my uh, friend and former uh, co-worker, Aaron reached out to me um, and said, I want to show you something. And he had devised a prototype for an app that was a map. It was a map of the United States. And he said, okay, toggle in and out of it. Right? So I was toggling, zooming in, zooming out, and I was seeing all the elections throughout the United States. Um, this time around, we're going to have some senatorial elections and along with the presidential, right? So I could see where all the candidates were. And then there was a little shopping cart and I could click whatever amount. Like if I, if I only had a dollar, I could choose a dollar. If I had a hundred dollars, I could give a hundred dollars and I could put them in a basket for any and all candidates across the nation, across the nation that I care about. I could learn about these candidates, what they stood for, um, whether that represented my views or not. And then suddenly I'm like, wait a minute, why didn't I ever think of this? I mean, you know, I'm, a, I'm a mature guy. I'm, I thought of myself as politically savvy. It never occurred to me, not once, that I could make a difference outside my own state. And this was the digital tool to do it. It completely blew my mind. And I, said, know, to, I said to Aaron, just to finish on that real quick, I said to Aaron, hey, could this make sense even at the local level? Like you could choose a school board um, uh, or, or even municipal elections? Because I think if people had access electronically to their own stuff locally, you know what? They might actually participate because it's so easy. So that ease of use and that idea, I can actually make a difference anywhere in the country, possibly anywhere on the planet sometime, is so powerful. And that's why I joined the project. It's extremely powerful and surprisingly simple, right? It's completely the simple. I mean, what could be more simple than that? So let's make a slight detour because another peculiarity of the US system is these 
political action committees. And the reason I bring those up, and, and please explain them to people because they're really opaque uh, to me still, even though, I mean, I have a rudimentary understanding. But the reason I was bringing them up, and uh, please enlighten us all on how they really even exist, but that used to be the excuse that people have for saying, well, you know, it's big money in politics. The fact that if you have some amount of money, you can support these organizations that actually have political messages and present them typically in, in the form of advertisements, you know, in, in various states. So that is already remote activism, you know, for the elite. Uh-huh. What you're describing is kind of the corollary for the everyday person. Um, but, but tell us a little bit about political action committee and whether they even have anything to do with this. Would, would any of the activity you facilitate, by the way, have to be registered as a political action committee? They do. Um, it's, a, again, a great question. Um, so there's certain forms of corporate forms in the United States um, that uh, are connected to politics. The moment money goes from a person to a politician through an agency of some kind, that agency has to be and has no choice in the matter but to be a political action committee, a PAC. Now, uh, the thought for a long time was, well, politics are dirty uh, because of money. The minute you have money in politics, it's a huge problem. Why? Because it's mostly corporations giving money to candidates. Um, And that's true on the left as well as the right. One thing people forget, um, that's a discussion I was having with the co-founder, Aaron, actually. Uh, Aaron uh, would say to me, hey, um, Democrats have a money problem because they're not as funded as Republicans. Republicans never have a money problem problem because corporations always give them money. But then, if you look at the history of presidential elections, uh, especially over the past, let's call it 20 years, so Obama, even going back to the Clintons, you realize that the left regularly gets more funding than its Republican counterpart. Now, that's interesting. What does that tell us? It tells us that uh, there's a new breed uh, of corporate leaders and billionaires who are liberals. Hello, Jeff Bezos. (laughs) Everybody hates him. He's a liberal. Uh, Benioff is a rabid liberal. Zuckerberg is a liberal. So there's all these guys and women uh, who actually tend to donate to uh, democratic causes. And so you could say, you could reasonably argue that politics now are just as dirty on the left side as they are on the right side, right? So all of this goes through a pack. And frankly, this was, would not be such a huge problem because we do have disclosure rules. Everybody can see what PACs are donating, uh, who controls them, and where the money is going. So, you know, that's fairly transparent. What became less transparent is when, and this is getting a little bit complicated, and we don't have to dwell on it, but recently the Supreme Court made a decision called Citizens United that described PACs as entities 
that had a right to donate without much disclosure and in unlimited fashion. Okay, well, that certainly opened the door to a lot of excess. Now, in parallel to this evolution, which I don't think is that great, honestly, uh, because it continues the narrative of politicians being in control and in collusion with big donors, there was a phenomenon that nobody's talking enough about, I don't think. And that's the Bernie Sanders campaign. That literally, literally revolutionized politics in the United States because suddenly you had this thing called the Bernie Bros and the Bernie Sisters, where people were making micro donations. The people, you and me, all kinds of people from all walks of life, life, not just elite donors, were making a ton of donations to the Bernie Sanders campaign. And as a consequence, he almost won, right? The guy came close twice. So this totally revolutionized American politics and where America starts, usually the rest of the world goes. And it is kind of the philosophy behind the Blue Nami Project, right? Um, Tell me a little more detail about the Blue Nami Project. Uh, so what do I do? I, I, let's say I want to use Blunami. I, I think that remote activism, political activism is important. I want to engage in some other state. I want to have impact. What do I do? How much do I spend? What impact can I expect to have? Super easy. All you need to do is download the app. And not everybody knows how to do that, right? Um, interestingly, I should say everybody. That's an interesting thought, right? Is that true? Is that even true? Well, it turns out that smartphone penetration in the United States is 70%. 70%. Think about that. More people have a smartphone in this country than they probably own a home. That, that's astounding to me. So they have the digital tool, and now we get into how do you use it? Well, you could imagine a situation with people who don't have access to a whole lot of education or a whole lot of political engagement suddenly have access because they've got the tool. They've got the app. If you download the app, there's a map of the U.S. The map of the U.S. tells you where all the races are. Better yet, it tells you where you, where you can spend, where you're going to get the most bang for your buck. So let's say there's a Democratic candidate running against a very, very strong Republican contender, and the chances of them winning is close to zero. Don't spend your money there. The app will tell you that. Not a good idea. Wasting your money. Now, let's, let's look at a very narrow race. Uh, let's say Virginia, Stacey Abrams against the incumbent, right? All she needs is another 50,000 bucks to place an ad and her numbers might go up and you might win along with everyone else in Virginia. You, Ron, are going to make that difference by giving her five bucks. doesn't have to be a whole heck of a lot. Five bucks. That's going to be enough because there's going to be a thousand people like you doing that. And then suddenly Stacy has a chance of winning and you're the reason. 
It's fascinating to hear you speak about this, Laurent, because as, I, as I'm listening to this, as simple as it sounded uh, in the beginning, the complicated implications of this in terms of all, I mean, there are some questions it maybe raises about, you know, the legitimacy and democratizability of this or whatever you want to call it. I mean, is this something that will fundamentally reshape the way we think of our political voice? Because what comes to mind to me is obviously this brings to an individual the strategic and kind of implementation toolkit, if you will, to become a more efficient political voice. But of course, like with any tool, and I'm sure you will agree with this, you know, the way people said the internet is just going to liberate everybody and we're going to have free information, right? This kind of tool is, of course, available to people with a lot of money as well. So how do you, with the intentions that you had to, I guess, make people more engaged, there there certainly can't be an expectation in, in you uh, as founders in your mind that this is going to somehow sanitize and make politics not just clean again, but I mean, certainly people with all kinds of positions could engage in this. And the more people that engage, yes, this race has become then more heated up, I guess, in, in, in these places. But does something fundamentally change just because more people are legitimately engaged? Is that what you're trying to hope for? I think that's at the heart of the discussion and the discussion now it, it's no longer about digital transformation but it's about is digit should should digital transformation alter democracy or should it just reinforce it and finally fulfill the promise of the internet um, and i i think that's the second piece um, we're, we're trying to go for with aaron and wonderful team we're working with um, no, we would be naive. I mean, look at what happened to Google, right? Um, I'm going to be blunt here. I don't really care. I, mean, I don't have stock in Google. So um, they, they were supposed to be the not evil company. Do you remember that stuff? Oh, we're not evil. This is a different way. Um, I, I think they're still not evil, or they they use that phrase now and then. But uh, yeah, that that was uh, for a long right. time. Um, well, they've phrase. become a, a very corporate business. They have very troubling uh, actions and views on privacy, uh, and I think that's that's a result of them growing up into a, 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 a globe dominating business. Uh, they've cut very weak deals with it. Is it a natural result of Laurent? Because, I mean, we were starting down this path early on in the conversation where you were sort of saying the opposite, right? You said, just because there are corporations involved doesn't necessarily make it problematic, I guess, you know? So what, what do you think is the difference between an individual and a corporate voice in, in terms of having a political voice. I mean, wh wh where do you draw the line when it becomes illegitimate? Because certainly, you know, whether it's Google or some other corporation, they can fairly legitimately present a point of view. They can finance that point of view. And as long as it's disclosed in these PACs, you know, in the U.S. system and in various other 
legislations in the EU they have to disclose in the lobbying registry, you know, how many mm-hmm. people and how much money they have spent on lobbying in a given year. And these things are somewhat regulated. Um, it doesn't make it necessarily fair game. I mean, you know, you have resources, you can influence more. But what is the fundamental problem that you have with corporate actors in, in this kind of digital age of activism? You know, I don't. I think that I think I don't have a problem with corporations per se. I think businesses are a good thing. We need to have jobs. There need to be businesses. I think the problem is when businesses dictate the political agenda, not for some rabid communist reason. I'm not a communist. Um, it's because it doesn't make sense. Corporations are not people, despite the Citizens United decision. They are collections of people with a business agenda, right? So what are we interested in as a democracy, right? Sure, we're interested in the economy, and we should try our best uh, to make the economy functional and to keep jobs alive for everybody. Okay, fine. But when it comes to the rights of people, let's go back to privacy for a second, right? How does Google or Facebook or any of these guys, especially the digital guys, and and note that these are all companies run by liberals, which is even more mind-boggling. How should these people dictate the privacy agenda? They They shouldn't even be part of the discussion for me. For me, they should be on the receiving end of what we decide as a people. I think you're, you're hearing the anger in my voice, but I am angry about this. Why are these guys part of the goddamn debate on this? They should not be. This is, privacy is their business. It's our right. It's a human right. So how do these guys get to tell us how that's handled? That's insane. We should hand them down the, the law. End of story. So that's so Laurent, what I think. Yeah. Before we, uh, uh, or in our preparation, you said something that I wrote down. You said disruption is not some chaotic force that we have to brace for or one that needs to be harnessed for success. It's a direct and natural result of the acceleration of history. Right. What do you mean by that? I mean exactly that. I mean, when everybody uses Google, there are going to be consequences. When everybody uses Facebook, there are going to be consequences, incredibly disruptive consequences, right? People are going to be in your face on Facebook, as the name implies. You're going to, you're going to be uncomfortable. There's going to be shouting matches. They're going to get super personal. Um, these companies are going to invade your privacy and so forth. All right. So there will be challenges, disruptive challenges the democracy, which is then asked to evolve. And I think what's happening and, and really, really saddens me is that the citizenry has given up. It's just taking the disruption lying down. Oh, well, what can we do? Right? We're, we're a little more disempowered every day. That's how technology works. History is accelerating. You know, what, what can I do about that? I'm not even going to show up to vote because all of these guys are corporate stooges anyway. So end of story. 
That is a very bad response to the acceleration of history. So in the last Indiana's five minutes, I wanted to cover some of the very specific things okay. that you are concerned about. So you, you told me about some side effects of that acceleration. And, and um, the things we talked about earlier were climate change, pandemics, uh, plastic production, and, and then the big topic of mass extinction. And I'd like you to comment on, on a couple of these, you know, wh why these particular challenges? Because there are so many global challenges out there that one could apply activism or remote activism to. Why these specific issues and, and how to engage if you want to kind of give advice to an individual that's sitting in some state, red or blue, and wants to exert their voice in a novel, technologically enhanced, remote way? So I want to be conscious of time, and I'm, I'm going to address these things in, in order, let's say. So let's lump all those topics that you mentioned earlier together as sustainability and the environment. Um, that's one of the consequences of disruption, uh, and a particularly kind of disruption called demo uh, demographics. Uh, there's too many people. Uh, so... I don't know if our tool can help with that. I don't think it can, other than distracting you from having sex and making more babies. But I don't think it's going to really do that. And I think we need to have a real debate as a society as to our numbers. There need to be fewer humans. That's going to solve a lot of environmental problems. And I think organizations, activist organizations that plead for that can be supported by the tool we provide and will be supported by that tool. I'm all for that. Um, the other thing, taking change lying down. I think, I really believe, I really believe, whether it's in red states or blue states, people have given up. A lot of people have given up. Half in the United States. More in Europe, apparently. I don't know, in some places. Um, because they feel individually they can't make any change. Well, that's not true. They can. They can pick candidates that are not necessarily handpicked by the powers that be, by the big parties, or don't, don't even have support. But you may like what they have to say. And if there's enough of you, then you have a Bernie Sanders. And that has happened. It's happened twice now. The guy's for real. He's, he's not a joke. And there are many of these kinds of people around the world. So this is more of a hopeful message. Um, I, I think I'm claiming that in the face of this massive disruption where we feel like the entire biosphere is a runaway system um, and the political system is a runaway system where we have no say. Well, actually, we do. And further to that, uh, our app wants to go beyond just supporting candidates. It wants you to support your causes because I think that's another disruption that you describe in your book, by the way, uh, a beautiful book uh, about the, the future that awaits us. And that's the fragmentation uh, of action. Maybe that's actually a good thing. I don't know how I feel about it right now, but I think people who specialize in certain things, like I care about the environment and I don't really care about politics other than that. I used to think that was a bad thing. Now I think maybe that's a good thing. Um, and especially in a digital context where you can pick up an app and say, send 500 bucks to Greenpeace. And then give another hundred to the Sierra Club. Uh, and then there's this group in Brazil that hates Bolsonaro 
or destroying the rainforest there. Give them another 50. I think that's also the future. You know, I would like to be able to act in Brazil and keep Bolsonaro from destroying the Amazon. I would love to do that. Well, guess what? With this app down the road, that might happen. And other apps. I'm not claiming just our app. There's going to be other tools. Laurent, it's, it's fascinating. I think the emergence of remote activism is a completely revolutionary trend that is disappearingly uh, little talked about, but also going to be impacting not just this election here in the US, but other elections and, and, and much beyond elections. So thank you so much for sharing your views and for engaging and for teaching other people how we can use technology to engage in new ways. Thanks a lot, Laurent. Thank you, Charm. You have just listened to episode four of the Futurized podcast with host Trunarne Unheim. The topic was the future of remote activism. Our guest was Laurent Lisha, entrepreneur, ex-diplomat, and standards activist. My takeaway is that remote activism helped by technology is so much more exciting and disruptive than I had previously imagined. It's going to be a huge force in society and will enable people to take part in important debates and support political candidates in swing states and places where it really matters. It has the potential to reignite politics as we know it, in a good way, I hope, and can hopefully stem the tide and stem the side effects of the acceleration of disruption that we are seeing around us. Thanks for listening. If you like the show, subscribe at futurized.co or in your preferred podcast player. Futurized, preparing you to deal with disruption.